This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlunderfritz. My guest today is Joseph Loizo from the Community of God's Love in Steubenville. Hi, Joseph. So glad to have you joining us today. Hi, Malcolm. Thank you for inviting me to be guest on your podcast. To start, could you just tell us a little bit about the origin of the community? Okay. So just recently, actually just last weekend, we celebrated our 44th anniversary. Our community was founded August 21st, 1977, when 40 brothers and sisters signed the first covenant agreement. 1977 was one of the high points of the charismatic renewal movement in the Catholic Church, and there were prayer groups springing up all over the country, and more than a few of those prayer groups turned into uh, covenant communities of different sorts, and ours was one of them. So around 300 people were meeting at Franciscan University of Steubenville for a charismatic weekly prayer meeting, and 40 of those members over that year determined that God was calling them to a more committed set of relationships, and they signed that first covenant agreement on August 21st of that year. Um, the idea was that they, they felt like they wanted more of a commitment beyond meeting together for a weekly prayer and praise meeting. And, uh, and that's how the community started. We had several name changes over the years. I believe the first name that they started out with was the Servants of God's Love. And then very shortly after that, they amended that to the Servants of Christ the King, more reflective of their close association with Christ the King Chapel on Franciscan University campus which they maintained as their home for uh, quite a few years afterwards as the community grew in, in size. And the, I think at one point, there was over 375 members in those early years. So th that, was the, that was the early beginnings. Growth was really, really rapid, 1970s, 1980s. Uh, you know, when the, when the first 40 members wanted that deeper sense of commitment, um, did they look to any particular models or inspiration? You know, like okay, they're they're meeting together. They want something more. Um, where did they Where did they get like the initial idea of uh, founding a covenant community? Uh, did they Did they look to any existing groups for that? There was an existing community in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and 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 they they looked to that community, the Word of God community. There was an, another existing group in uh, Dallas, Texas, I believe, the Community of God's Delight. And they looked to that community, too, for, for other sources of inspiration of how to start a covenant community. And then at what point did you join the community? And like, sort of what, what attracted you uh, to join it? Well, in 1985, my wife Liz and I and our three young children moved here to Steubenville, Ohio, from Dayton, Ohio. There were lots of people involved in the charismatic renewal in Dayton, Ohio, and we were members of a small covenant community there. But at a certain point in time, around mid-80s, there were about 10 families plus ours from Dayton, Ohio, who determined that God was calling us to come out to Steubenville and serve the broader charismatic renewal as it was being associated with Franciscan University of Steubenville. So 11 families in total made that move and it took took those 11 families, I mean, as you can imagine, some place more than two years to eventually move, come here, settle, find a new house, find new jobs, et cetera, et cetera, uh, in order to be part of the apostolate mission 
of this particular community here in Steubenville. And, and, it, and it, was a, it was a great adventure and uh, uh, certainly a, a great upheaval in our lives to do that. But we felt like God was inspiring us to do it and bring our talents and gifts and skills uh, to the assistance of this community here that was growing by leaps and bounds, really, at that point in time. And, and so we plugged ourselves in here, and a number of us have been here ever since. Some have moved on, you know, and jobs and family responsibilities, et cetera. But a number of us have stayed put here and, and uh, become part of the backbone of what is now the community of God's love. And so when you're, you're saying, you know, you moved to join the mission of the community, what in particular did you hope to, you know, help the, help the community do? What, were you, what was your envisioned role in, in the community? There were, for me personally, there was more of a sense of um, a, a nationwide outreach emanating from Little Steubenville, Ohio, as part of assisting Franciscan University and its work, primarily the Christian Conference Office, which held conferences every summer, brought hundreds, if not thousands, of people here to Steubenville to hear uh, preaching from national level speakers. And we assisted in all of those aspects of, of running the conference, providing logistical support um, in every way imaginable. For more than 20 years, I was a part of the team that provided prayer ministry for the many, many youth conferences that were here at Franciscan University in the summers. And so literally, there were myriads of opportunities for all of us in the community to assist in that effort alone. And that was one of the things that attracted us to my wife and I to come here. And the other thing that attracted us was, frankly, the uh, formation and the uh, assistance that the Franciscan Friars provided to the community members here. That was very, very encouraging, very, very attractive. Uh, we, we felt more secure that we were uh, serving in the heart of the church, so to speak, you know, with, with their leadership and their assistance and, and developing the whole uh, community. Those were parts of the things that really encouraged us to make that big trip. Um, as I said, it took maybe two and a half years for me personally to find a sustainable job. Uh, Steubenville is not exactly a mecca of, of, right, uh, right. Yeah. of, of jobs. And so it, it took me as a, as a master's degree social worker, it took me a longer period of time than some of my other colleagues that moved um, uh, to find a position here that would support the family. And myself and many others, we came here at great financial sacrifice in the early days in order to be here and do God's work. Um, and, and God certainly had provided for us all, all along the way. And, you know, you, you mentioned, of course, that you have this relationship with the university. How, uh, how like, formalized was that association? Were, were you seen as sort of like part of the, the you know, like, w was there any formal link or was it just a association there? Well, that's a good question, actually, Malcolm. There were formal and informal links. So a number of us, like myself, ended up finding jobs at the university. So we were employees, whether they were teachers. Myself, I was an administrator. There were many different levels of employment there for lots of, lots of us. And then there were lots of informal links with uh, the Christian Conference Office, as I said, where we served in many different kinds of capacities. Uh, members of the community were serving as household advisors in their household system for, for the, uh, the students. We were mentors in many different kinds of ways for students. Um, so, so there were lots of ways that we, we plugged in formally and informally to the work of the university. 
That's interesting because you know one of the difficulties I find when I talk to people about you know, trying to start Christian community is finding something that could provide a sort of anchor or catalyst for things to grow up around. So your community was lucky then to have the, the university there to provide that. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely was a catalyst, an anchor. Those are two really good descriptive phrases. It, it, it provided a, 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 a footprint for us to uh, stand on and grow then in our own kind of ways. Um, yeah, there were lots of people in the community who were not involved as employees of the university too. So they were going about their daily vocations, you know, all over this valley. And, uh, and yet we still had that kind of secure base of, of the university to operate in. And then the other big plus for us in relation to that was that we had an awful lot of young people who graduated from university and decided to stick around here in Steubenville for a while because of the community and and became rooted here too some met their spouses some raised their families uh but there was there was a natural resource back in the 70s and 80s and even the early 90s uh, of young people coming into community you know from that footprint so uh you know as the community went along you know you mentioned in our earlier phone conversation that one of the traumatic events in the life of the community was a rupture within the community Tell us a little more about how that uh, happened. Sure. Uh, as I mentioned, there was a, a great explosion of new members into the community. And in the course of uh, caring for those people, and, and again, you know, uh, educating people, training people how to be good leaders and all that, in and, and lots of different ways, there were people along the way that got hurt by some of that. You know, whereas the uh, the expectations and the bar of, oh, I need to be at a certain level of holiness. I'm not saying that that was ever said that way, but people may have picked that up and perceived that you have to do thus and so in order to be considered holy, in order to cons- consider being a good member, you know. So it became kind of a pride, a spiritual pride kind of issue uh, for some people. And for some people, they found that very oppressive. They found that hurtful. And so there began to be grumblings and complaints about that. Uh, And this is like around 1990 or so. Um, And at a certain point, uh, those folks who felt really the most about that uh, went to seek the advice of of our local ordinary, our bishop of Steubenville. And and he embarked upon a um, evaluation from top to bottom of the entire community and the way we were structured, the way our leadership was structured, the way we were running things. And, and uh, determined there was a number of things that he wanted to see corrected at that time. So there was a big rupture there. There were people who left, you know, just kind of with a bad taste in their mouth and with real sincere hurts. Uh, there were people who decided, well, I think I'll stay in Steubenville and continue my job and career and all that, but I'm not going to have anything more to do with this group of people. And then there were people who stayed. Of the people who stayed in community, there became a split there. So... A, a large group, I wouldn't say half, but a large group decided, you know, we we th- they thought that the community should have more of a Franciscan basis for existence. And so they turned and formed their own little Franciscan group. And then there was a, a group of people that decided, no, they liked the original basis of the community and the charismatic experience and would reform that and continue on. But these were two groups with two different tracks going on at the same time. This was around 1991, 92. Um, and in a certain period of time, I don't remember exactly what year, the leaders of both groups heard a word from the Lord that said to them something to the effect of, 
you know, you can continue to exist side by side in this little town, but it won't take long before you run out of resources and, and you're going to both fail. You need to really reconcile in order to, to continue on. And thank God for the leadership, really listening to that inspiration, I believe from the Holy Spirit, the two groups started to talk to one another again and decided, yeah, there was a way that they could reconcile their differences and came back together. This is probably around the middle 1990s now. And, and the community has existed now as a, as a reconciled group ever since the mid-90s and made a name change. Again, name changes here. Made a name change to our current name, the Community of God's Love. It really emphasized that God is calling us to love one another He's calling us to be reconciled to one another. He's calling us to uh, a, a distinctly different way of life that puts love for one another first. And that's the way it's been ever since. Yeah, I find that, you know, that story of division and later reconciliation really interesting for, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one of them, as you know, you were pointing out, that one of the contributing factors was um, too, too high of expectations, perhaps, being placed on, on individuals and perhaps also too high of expectations of individuals coming in, of what, you know, like being able to achieve perfection in some way. And that's a, that's a theme that I've heard over and over again from communities that that can be one of the problems that uh, emerges in community life. I, I think it's true. It certainly was true in our case. You know, when you look at the scripture verse, Matthew 5, verse 48, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, right? And, and that, that's scripture. So that, that is correct. However, and the application of that particular passage, we tend to take it that uh, the wrong way sometimes. And I think that's exactly what we did. It's kind of like quotations, my way is the only way to holiness, you know, mm -hmm. or everybody else might be okay. Even everybody else in the church might be okay for that matter. But my way is the only way, that kind of spiritual pride. Or the other thing is like marks of holiness. If you do this number of hours of prayer, if you do this number of devotions, if you do this number of hours of Eucharistic adoration, all good things, right? All essential routes to holiness. But if you do this number of hours and this number of things, then you're going to be holy. That's mm -hmm. not the way it works right? No, at all. But in our zeal and youth, we took that to be like a very, very high standard. Um, I can remember hearing a talk one time in community that says, you know, maybe God is calling us to double our private prayer time. So, you know, the reasonable side of my brain said, well, okay, if I've been praying 15 minutes every morning, I'm going to try to pray 30 minutes. That might be reasonable. But you had some people who were already praying an hour a day. Mm -hmm. And now for those people to say, oh, my gosh, you're asking me to pray two hours a day? Are you kidding me? It became unbearable. This is where people then started to get down on themselves. They felt like they were being judged if they weren't praying two hours a day. It mm -hmm. got really, uh, uh, really quite complicated. And this is where people got injured. They really got hurt. Their, their spiritual life got hurt. There's no doubt in my mind. Emotionally, they got hurt. Um, there was this kind of mentality of, I have to keep up with the Joneses. It, it's all incorrect. And yet, that's what was going on. So my way is the only way. You know, i got to be perfect. I've got to measure up somehow. And we know, we know now, in retrospect, humility is the key. We're all striving for holiness, but we're never going to be perfectly holy this side of the pearly gates. Right, right. None of us, I think none of us is. That's a true statement. So so we got to try as hard as we can, but just really be humble and recognize we're in it together. 
we're helping each other along the way and nobody's better than the other that that's that's one of the things i think we learned and you know when you now i'm this year i celebrated a 50-year anniversary of being baptized in the holy spirit you know beginning of the charismatic renewal till today and it's like you know you recognize these things in, in retrospect uh zealousness is great but zealousness might lead to pride if you're not careful um and then you set up goals that you can't possibly reach whether it's individually or as a group yeah and you know that you know you see this even playing out in the gospel right you know like you know here's christ and he has a lot of bad things to say about the pharisees you know just in in the readings uh, today again there he is calling them out and they're not like they're not bad people they're doing many good things but the danger is that those good things can become yeah like almost like status symbols like they turn you know sanctity and a relationship with the lord into a game that you can win it's like if you you know collect so many counters and pass go 10 times you've won you're you're holy and you have a relationship with the lord and then those other guys who haven't passed go 10 times um you know they're not and t- turning it into something that can be easily easily quantified and then used to sort the the good or holy people out from all the rest of them and you know i've i've run into that problem in my own life and and heard it from other people it seems to be a kind of a a central problem that that can lie in wait for people who are trying to lead devout lives i think it's part of human nature you know we we all have that i want to i want to collect merit bridges kind of kind of mm-hmm. a part of our nature and and it's part of being a human being and then when we do that in the midst of trying to be holy it gets mixed up really quickly and it becomes merit badge contest and it becomes as you said kind of like the pharisees you know i'm much better than this poor guy standing at the door who's coming in the temple to pray but you know i know i'm much better than he is it kind of gets like that and again human nature sin really mm-hmm. when you come right down to it um and so we can all fall prey to that that the key again is and i think one of the essential aspects of community for me and i think for anybody is that we're in this together we're here to assist each other to achieve as much holiness of life that we can, you know, and, 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 and we need each other to do that. The Christian life, I don't believe is meant to be lived in isolation. I think we need one another. That's how God made us. And, and so I know I need my brothers and sisters in community to encourage me and they inspire me all the time by their lives of devotion, their lives of prayer. And, and sometimes they correct me when I'm wrong, because I'm not always right. You know, sometimes they call me out and say, no, that that wasn't right, what you just said, or or that that thing that you just did. Are you sure that's right? That doesn't seem right to me. And in Christian community, we need each other to do that. Yeah, and it's so important to, uh, you know, like, uh, if we come in, like, expecting perfection from ourselves and other people, then, then it's disaster. And that, in a sense, you know, as I've been talking to these different community members it really seems that in a sense the um beauty of community is that it shows us that we're not perfect it, it gives us a group of people that we can all realize that we're all we're all flawed together um i forget which interview it was but one of the recent interviews i did uh the community member was saying well you know like the, the kind of the the whole point is that we're all just ordinary human beings ordinary human beings trying to follow the lord together realizing that we none of us can make it by ourselves that we need one another and we need one another to kind of keep us honest uh 
he was saying like, I don't think I could get to heaven without kind of the friction of having to rub up against these other people and yet stay in, in communion with them. That, that kind of tension there that will help, you know, he was talking about how, how much it would help him to, to understand himself, to see his weakness, see other people's weakness, and to exercise that kind of mercy that, that he needed to practice in his life. I think that's a good point. I remember years ago a talk that I heard, and I don't remember who gave it now or even where it was, but it stuck in my mind because it described the relationships in Christian community like uh, sandpaper on wood, that we're each rubbing against the other, and God is using that like sandpaper to smooth out the rough edges on me, and he's using me to smooth out the rough edges on you. And and it's interesting. And, and covenant community, there are lots of people in covenant community that I might not have picked as my first line of friends, mm-hmm. you know, as my intimate associates, just left to my own devices. And yet God put us in community together, and, and I have to learn to love that brother or sister. You know, regardless of what rough edges they might have, I have to learn to love that person because God has committed me to that person. And uh, and it's sometimes it's really challenging. I mean, often it's really challenging. But it's all part of the process that, that God is, is bringing us together for his purposes um, to, to show that Christian community can really be lived, you know, and, and it is desirable. You know, it's, in that sense, it's like the primary community that God designed, which is the family. I mean, we're all born into a family we didn't choose. Uh, if we'd had to pick a family ahead of time, we might have not picked those siblings or parents or aunts and uncles or grandparents, but we're just put into um, this already existing uh, community. And, and that's, you know, like that's a good thing that it's not chosen, that it's not like, because uh, if, if it was just chosen, you know, you choose people who are just like you, uh, you would certainly not choose the sandpaper effect. <laughs> and, that's, and that's like if people are not coming in expecting us, like sometimes I think people can uh, try to find community expecting to get away from the sandpaper effect of, of real life. Um, when the opposite is true, obviously the more intensely one lives together with a group, the the more sandpaper it's going to get, as you said. Yeah, I think that's a good word, Malcolm. And and it's like you know there are um, people with really strong opinions that you're going to meet in community, and you got to figure out how to deal with that. You know, you got to figure out how to. Love one another just as we are with flaws, with strong points, with weaknesses, and yet we're called to love one another. You know, I would have no doubt that if I was called to give anything I needed to give, you know, for one of my brothers and sisters in the community, I would do that because that's the kind of commitment, that's the kind of love God is calling us to do for one another and to be for one another. Um, it, it, it's interesting that the people have asked me over the years, well, what is this commitment like? You say you're a covenant committed community. What does that really mean? You know, and we constantly reflect on that. Obviously, it's one of the key parts of God's call to us. It's been to commit yourselves to one another. And so we recognize it as a serious commitment. It's not like a vow. It's, in fact, subservient or secondary to the more substantial, serious vows that we make in life, like I'm a married man, my, my vow to my wife, my vow to my family comes first. Uh, we've had uh, religious, and we've had brothers, we've had priests, we've had uh, religious sisters, we've had consecrated virgins. 
as part of our community, but we're really clear that their commitment to our covenant community is secondary to their primary commitments in life, which is to their religious order or to their religious vocation, whatever. And, and yet it's a serious kind of commitment. So we ask people when they're coming into community to come to our events, come to all the things that we offer uh, for about a year, and then participate in about a year and a half process, at least at the present moment, of seminar and, and training so they could further understand what the nature of our community is like and discern, you know, am I really called to this way of life? Because it is a calling. And then from there, they enter into an initial commitment that lasts for a couple of years, and then they they, they make a, the formal commitment that all the rest of us have made. Um, but there's plenty of time there for them to live in community and experience community and participate in community and say finally, yeah, I think God is calling me here, and this is the place I'm going to stick to, unless he's calling me to someplace different. But for, for right now, this is where God is calling me to be. Yeah, it's a good thing that, you know, it seems like all the more structured communities that, that I've heard of, you know, like they have, they have a waiting period. People are not allowed to just, you know, jump right into it. They have to experience it more gradually first, because yeah, how are you going to tell if that's where you're going to be a good fit ultimately, except by experiencing the day-to-day -day life of it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're this, um, Next month, we're going to celebrate our annual community uh, celebration, and it's kind of a commemoration of our founding, and uh, we do some uh, in-depth training on the course of a weekend. But part of that weekend event is going to be we're going to accept the first underway commitment of five brothers and sisters that have gone through this beginning experience of training together. And it's a really exciting time for all of us to see five people uh, all at once say, yeah, I, I want to commit to what you're doing. I believe God is asking me to commit to this way of life together with you. It's just a really wonderful time of celebration. And, and we're looking forward to that next month to do that. It's kind of a, 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 a recharging of my own commitment, seeing these five newcomers make that beginning commitment to us. So in the, in the community, what is the structure of the community just from day to day? What are the activities that uh, define it? What do the members do? on a regular basis. Sure. So our community's purposes from our documents, our statutes and all that, like any other organization, you know, we have founding documents and the, the purposes are kind of uh, four points. One is to promote holiness of members, you know, support a, a holy way of life. The second one is to support family life. Another one is to foster the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the use of the charismatic gifts, as we've learned in the charismatic renewal over all these years. Um, and then I think the last one is to support the mission and work of the Diocese of Steubenville, because that's where we live. Um, so, and, and living out those purposes, our community has a, a praise and worship, charismatic prayer meeting that's open to the public, not just our members. And we do that three times a month. We meet on uh, Sunday evening from five to seven, and that's when we hold our praise and worship meetings. Then in addition to that, the members are supposed to participate in uh, a small share group that'll meet once a week or every other week in people's homes. And usually there's someplace between five to seven members in that share group. That's where you get your ongoing daily support, you know? And so there's men's groups, there's women's groups, there's couples groups, um, all kind of different shapes and formats of groups. 
but our only requirement is that you belong to a group and you participate in it and, and get your support and give support to the other members of the group. Then we have uh, uh, every other month we have uh, our chaplain, uh, Father Tim, celebrates uh, Eucharist with us and celebrates Mass for us every other month. So that's for community members, their families, and you can invite friends and guests to that. We do that every other month. The, the other thing that we encourage people to do is every Saturday night to celebrate uh, a, a simple service of prayers and, and reflections, setting aside the Lord's Day as a, as a holy day. And so we do that like many other groups and communities around the country. We, we celebrate the Lord's Day service on Saturday night, and, and it reminds us that tomorrow, Sunday, is supposed to be a special day of praise of the Lord, Mass, and, and uh, rest and relaxation, too, is part of that. Um, and so we do that sometimes as a, as a whole community, but we encourage families to do that in their homes as well. Then there are other things we do from time to time, like retreats. I mentioned this annual conference that we're going to do next month. Um, uh, there are lots of different kinds of activities like that that are part of the community's way of life. Okay. Then, of course, there's service, too, both service internal to the community and service external to uh, the Steubenville area and especially to the Diocese of Steubenville itself. Um, and so we, we encourage people as much as they can to do different ministries or apostolates of service. You know, Joseph, as I'm, I'm thinking about this, um, you know, thinking about how your community was, you know, reformed by two different groups with somewhat differing perspectives and spiritualities coming together, it, it reminded me of uh, my interview with the Alleluia community, which, of course, takes that, that principle pretty far by being an ecumenical community and, and bringing all kinds of different perspectives. But I was thinking about just, you know, like this, this, how beautiful, you know, the diversity of different perspectives and, and ministries and spiritualities in the church can be, how enriching they can be if they don't become like a basis for, for pulling apart. In, in my own life, I uh, was part of various groups that had a particular uh, spirituality, but that they saw that spirituality as not like, you know, being part of the church to build it up, but as being so much superior to what everyone else did that they um, you know, that they, that they, they saw, they used that as a basis for pulling away from, uh, the wider community and from the wider church. So it's just, it's just interesting that then your community, of course, can, was able to, you know, pull two groups with it, with a differing perspective, uh, back into one cohesive whole that's now worked for, for all these decades. And uh, I think part of that was just recognizing that, yeah, we could all have a different sense of spirituality. And yet, we're all striving for the same thing. We're all striving for holiness of life and attracting people to come follow Jesus with us. Whether their particular spirituality is Franciscan or is it Ignatian, uh, we've got all these kind of strains in our community now. And everybody accepts it, each other. You know, this is serving you, this is helping you. Great. I would say there is probably, Malcolm, a, if you visited here, there is more of a Franciscan flavor here. We never really got away from that root in our community because that that was, you know, a, a root principle that we were founded upon. Yeah. Um, and, and so there there is a, a a sense of Franciscan flavor here. Is it is it the most important thing or the first thing that you notice? Probably not, but it's definitely there. And if you spend some time with us, you you kind of you kind of get that. Yeah, and then. Um... Another another point about about your community I'm interested in. You had mentioned that in your community, 
um, leadership is term limited. And um, I know that in some other communities, uh, they, they elect leaders either for life or until they reach a certain age for, for long periods of time. Can you tell us a little more about the leadership structure and about the pros and cons, I guess, of having a term limited leaders or having leaders in for life? So we changed our leadership structure as part of that uh, revamping of community that occurred in the early 1990s. And one of the things the bishop wanted to see actually was that we would do that. And so we devised after much discussion and consultation with all the members. And you can imagine the the, the kinds of conversations that went on about that. Right. Uh, but we devised the system where our council members are elected. So that's the leadership body. Uh, it's a five-person council. And we're, we staggered the terms of office. You can serve three years, and then you could be reelected. If the community members reelect you for another three years, then you got to step away, I think, for another whole term. So you got to step away at least for another three years. You could be reelected again later. And a couple of people have done that. Um, but it, it allows people to, uh, it allows the members to have an ongoing opportunity to say, yeah, I agree with the direction that you're leading us. And, and I'm going to endorse that for another three years, at least. So th that's the positives that you get that change of elected uh, 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 leadership. On the negative side, it's hard to maintain continuity at times over the years with, with that much change going on. You know, we staggered the terms, so of course not all five are, re, are up for re-election. But even so, it's hard to get continuity. Um, and you gotta, you got to take some painstaking efforts to make sure you have continuity with the past, you know, in, in relation to those changes in officers. And the second thing I would say that's a challenge is that, just to be frank, not everybody has the same level, whether it's natural giftedness or a spiritual gift of leadership or um, uh, a natural experience of life to be a seasoned leader. Mm -hmm. So there's there's, a, you know, especially as the community ages and now we're we're an aged community now, um, the majority of our members are over 60 years old. So. Now it, it gets it gets more and more difficult to say, okay, this term of office, who's going to take the reins of leadership at this point in time? You know, um, in contrast, I know other communities where they have leaders that go on for long periods of time. You know, the same leaders and, until they reach an age where they feel like they can't do it anymore, or health prohibits them from doing it anymore, or whatever. That has its own set of circumstances too. That's that's not so easy to deal with either, in terms of how do you bring up the next generation of leadership or the third generation of leadership, you know, for some of these communities, we've been doing that for a while now and it, it, it works out, but it is challenging in its own right for the reasons I mentioned. Mm -hmm. I mean, I suppose, you know, leadership in, in community life is always going to be one of the challenging aspects. However, it's, it's structured really. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it is. And and in our case, we've really worked hard at trying to figure out how do you listen to all the various voices of the community members? Now, we have about, I forget last count, 90 some odd people, I would say. There's probably more than that, but I would say 90 some odd people. And how do you allow those people to weigh in on a major decision? So I'm the chairman of our leadership council. And the way that I've gone about that is to have consultation with as many members of the community 
90 plus people as we possibly can. So we'll schedule some nights that are business nights and we'll tell them in advance, this is the topic we're going to discuss together. Uh, we even did it on Zoom a couple of times, you know, where, where you just give everybody, okay, I'm going to break you down into small groupings here using the Zoom, push the button. And, um, and then I want you to discuss for X number of minutes, this topic that maybe we had given a, a presentation on the week before. Sometimes I gave the same presentation that night and then allowed them to break up into small groups, share about it, and then have the groups come back and have one person from each small group report back to the whole. That way we get a chance as leaders then to hear what everybody's sense was about the question. Um, I'll give you an example. Recently, we did one of those consultations with our process of bringing new people into the community. We were proposing a slight change in how we were going to do that. And we wanted everybody to weigh in on it. And they had great discussions about it in their small groups. Then one person got up and shared at the microphone, this is what we came up with, blah, blah, blah. And, and I was able to get then a sense from the whole community, yes, go ahead with this proposal that you're making. And, and that, that's been a, a real good way for us to try to get everybody to understand what we were proposing to do, buy into it, and let all the voices be heard. You know, you, you touched on there the, the kind of the aspect of continuity and of you know, a community that's starting to age and has to try and bring new members in to, to maintain the community going forward. And that's something I'd like to talk about is that um, in our earlier phone conversation, you were mentioning that you know, you're experiencing that quite often uh, today, younger people are afraid of making a long-term commitment. Um, they don't. They don't feel ready to or willing to make that kind of commitment, and that's something I've heard from other people too. That that new generations of, of Catholic young people coming up are less likely to make a long term commitment to such a, a community of, where they have a formal commitment, and and that um, that's putting the future of some communities in doubt um, if they can't. Um, find people who are willing to make the commitment to carry it forward. You know, like, what are your thoughts on, you know, like why people are less willing to make the commitment and what a community can do about that? Oh, I think it's a very apropos question, certainly for my community and for all the covenant communities that I know of, you know, and we're constantly as leaders of these communities, we're talking about this problem and this issue. It's a challenge. What do we do about it to meet the challenge? I don't know. You know, I worked at, at, at university level as administrator for many years, 24 years, the last 24 years of my career before I retired. And I could see over those years a distinct change in the, the mentality of the young people, um, especially as compared to, let's say, when I was in my 20s and I first started joining community. There was back in that time period in the, early, in the middle 70s, late 70s, there was an excitement and an adventure about joining new things and about you know, kind of diving in with both feet for good and for bad um, that doesn't really exist today uh, among our young people now. Um, and there's, there's more of a hesitancy now for young people to make a commitment. I heard from a colleague recently, he said that he's found that it takes about six or seven years of relating to young 20-something-year-old people before you really get them to say, yeah, I think I could commit to this endeavor, whatever the endeavor is, whether it's religious community or whether it's whatever. 
Um, so six or seven years seem to me to be unheard of in the past. So there's a different mentality there. What causes that, whether it's societal uncertainties or I'm, I'm not sure. Um, even if you look at, I believe, the uh, age at which young people are entering into married state of life now, it was younger years ago. There's, there's, there's no doubt about that. I don't know where we're at exactly right now in 2021, but I think people are waiting longer to, to, uh, to enter into the married state of life. They're, they're waiting longer to have their first child for sure. Um, so this is all part of the same cultural dynamic shift, I think, uh, all the way across our society for the communities though, it's a particular challenge because at, like in our case, I said, the majority of us are, are over 60. We got a lot of people that are in their 70s and 80s. I mean, it's an older group. The challenge for us is, okay, how do we become uh, available to younger people? How do we offer the experience, the gifts that we have to younger people? How do we have those conversations or mentoring with younger people that we really want to do? We want to pass over this experience that we've had to another generation of people. Um, and so we're, we're constantly trying to figure out ways to do that. In our case, it's pretty interesting. We have, again, the, the jobs are not plentiful here in Steubenville. So like in my case, my three kids, none of them live in Steubenville with their families. They're scattered around the country. That's a very, very common reality here for us grandparents and, and Steubenville. Um, but the, the, the families that were fortunate enough to have their kids find jobs and put down roots here in Steubenville, most of those kids have not joined Covenant Community, or they grew up in Covenant Community. And I, I dare say a lot of them have kind of caught, quote unquote, the vision of needing other people to live your spiritual life, of the importance of prayer, the importance of fellowship, the importance of sacraments. They got all that. You could see it in their lives. They're living it. And yet they're not making a commitment to, to community. So it's challenging. Where, where the end is going to be, I don't pretend to know. You know, I, I, we're trying to follow the Holy Spirit as best we can and, and, and leave that up to him if this community is going to continue on into future generations. I, I hope it is. I think it is. But we don't know exactly how that's going to come about either. It's an interesting topic because I think it can even be seen in like um, how long people live in a, in a particular neighborhood. You know, a community needs a certain geographic component. And like I, I was um, here in Denver, Denver is a pretty new city altogether. But um, some of the some of the suburbs now like they were built in the in the early 60s and are, are starting to age and talking to some of the long-term residents, you know, like they bought the house as young couples and, and like, they know all the neighbors who also bought those houses when they were new as young couples. And you know, like that kind of, um, that kind of staying in a place more or less seemed to be fairly common for that generation. And now um, for younger people, they don't seem to be um, making a commitment even just to a place um, or our job. So yeah, it's not, it's not, unique to to the community but yeah that is is something to to ponder um you know about how how it can how obviously if, if people are not going to stay put in a particular place or a particular situation for any length of time then community becomes sort of impossible but if and if community is is essential to living the christian life you know in, in one sense that might i don't know what, what you think it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on this but do you think that this 
overall dynamic might have something to do with the fact that um, younger generations are not sticking with the church as a whole. Um, I mean, like, there's lots of things talk about why younger people are not staying around, but could part of it just be that if, if you know, attachment to a community is so important to being able to fully live the Christian life and people are not being able to attach to any community within parish structure or anything like that because they're moving around, do you think that's playing playing a role in this in this wider dynamic? Yeah, I, I think you hit, it, hit the nail on the head. It's part of a cultural phenomenon. People, young people are not staying in jobs as long as, say, I did, you know, in, 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 in my earlier years. People are not uh, um, staying in the same neighborhoods as long or the same town even as long. They feel much more a uh, sense of fluidity and movement around the country, you know, whether it's for job or whatever. And, and that all is kind of at the detriment to forming community life. You think, um, you know, could one way that a community might encourage or assist uh, people to put down roots and, and choose a place and, and a group um, would be to provide, um, you know, the community itself provide um, job or educational opportunities? Because, of course, those things are some of the things that pull people around. Um, you know, I, I know that most communities have not, you know, done that, but but do you think that could help people to get over the hurdles that our society is putting in the way of, of making long-term commitments? Yeah, that that that's an interesting line of thought. I mean, there are some communities that I know of that that could do that. You mentioned Alleluia Community in Augusta, Georgia. That's one. They actually run a Catholic grade school and junior I guess it's junior high or yeah, I think it goes up to eighth grade, but they actually run a Catholic school. The other one that I know of is in uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland, Mother of God community. Again, they run a Catholic school. So it's a way in which uh, uh, people can make that connectedness and make that uh, that sense of, I'm going to stay here and teach at this school and participate in this community life too. Um that they have a natural way of being able to do that, running both of those schools. I don't know if there are any other communities that have a job kind of oriented component. I don't think I'm saying that exactly correctly, but I think you understand what I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about, um, you know, if that, if that could help. One uh, a question, like with your community, is there anything, any like particular detail about your community that you think really – um, distinguishes it, uh, makes it unique as compared to other communities and other uh, covenant uh, charismatic communities in the country? Well, I think one of the things certainly that I've already alluded to is our foundational experience with the uh, Franciscan TOR religious community. I mean, that was an early formative, formative aspect of our community life. That, that gave us a different start than most of the other communities that I know, maybe all of the other communities actually that I know in, in the United States anyway. Um, there are some communities in, in Europe that have a similar kind of foundational stone with some uh, uh, existing religious congregation of men or women. I'm sure there are in Europe, but uh, in the United States, I don't know of another one that, that has that kind of foundation stone that we had. And then the other thing that made it our characteristic that, that made us really unique was 
our opportunities of service through Franciscan University of Steubenville. Um, I was just on a Zoom phone call with brothers and sisters from other communities around the country recently, and and we were talking about this very thing, that the, the impact that the Franciscan University of Steubenville made on our lives as a community and the impact that we made on the uh, uh, the Franciscan University itself was a really unique element. Lots of folks were commenting on that, uh, but they didn't have the opportunity to do that in, the, in their communities the way we did. And uh, you know, as we, we wrap up here and, and come to the end of our time, is there any practical piece of advice that you would want to give people who are trying to either find or uh, start a Christian community, something, something that you think would be helpful for them in that? So the thing, the thing that I thought about about this was that, first of all, listen to the Holy Spirit. If you're going to start a community, it's got to be the Holy Spirit that builds it. Otherwise, you're going to be like running your head into the wall, right? So listen to the Holy Spirit. Do what he inspires the best you can figure it out. Try not to go off on your own. Listen to the Holy Spirit. And of course, that takes multiple people working and talking and praying together in order to do that. The second thing was patience. Patience, patience. Be patient with one another because you're going to have the sandpaper effect on each other anyway in the course of this whole beginning and building and sustaining a community. Be patient. Along with patience, be ready to forgive. We've, we surely learned that the hard way. But be ready to forgive one another. Admit your faults. Admit your wrongs. Don't gloss over things that, that you know, let sleeping dogs lie. Don't do that. You know, admit your faults, admit your sins, admit your wrongs to one another, and forgive all the time. And then finally, get assistance from other people who have been doing it for many years. Uh, the North American Network of Catholic Covenant Communities is one that we belong to. There's existing communities there that have been doing it for as long as we are and some longer. Um, there are other such groups across the country and around the world as well, for that matter. Um, get advice and get assistance from brothers and sisters who have been doing it for a while. And you can avoid many, many different kinds of mistakes. I, personally, Malcolm, I believe that the world needs committed relationships, needs covenant communities now more than ever before. If anything, in the last 18 months with the pandemic, We've realized that we need each other um, and that the world is a very uncertain place. And we're, we're called to be like Jesus. We're called to reach out to other people and give them a sense of security, give them a sense of love, give them a sense of the truth that we know to be found in Christ. And and, and the world needs that now more than ever. Yeah, thanks so much, Joseph, for, for sharing that and for all your experience. I've really enjoyed hearing about your project, and I'm sure the listeners will like it too so thanks again and have a great rest of your day thank you malcolm it's been a blessing god bless you and your listeners